Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live, and I want to welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie, and I am your host and moderator for this exciting debate between Paul Price from the Uncensored Pilgrims YouTube channel and Taylor from the Snake Was Right YouTube channel. And tonight we are debating the important question, is there evidence for the existence of God? Paul Price is taking the affirmative tonight and Taylor is taking the negative. Now, what I'd like to do before we get into any opening statements is get some brief introductions, kind of break the ice and get to know our debaters a little bit. And Paul, it's been a bit since you've been here. The last time you were here, I believe, was a couple of years ago for your uh, very memorable debate with Ron Garrett on genetic entropy. So it is a pleasure and a privilege to have you back. And so why don't we start with you in terms of just a brief intro, a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your channel, Paul. Absolutely. Uh, very, very play, uh, pleased to be able to be with you guys again here on this channel. I know it's been, I guess, a, two to three years since I did that debate on genetic entropy, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I got to throw a huge shout out to my good friend, Pastor Marty McLean, who convinced me to join him on doing the Uncensored Pilgrims podcast. And um, so he, he's a really awesome guy, wrote two books, uh, got a doctorate of ministry degree, and I'm going to also crown him right here on the internet tonight with the king, the the king of dad jokes. So <laughs> be ready for that uh, on our amazing Uncensored Pilgrims podcast. But um, in any case, uh, I'm really excited to do this philosophical debate. I know this channel is uh, generally a little bit more focused toward the scientific debates, which are obviously a wonderful thing, but I also enjoy uh, talking about philosophy. So uh, I'm looking forward to the debate. Let me throw out my obligatory uh, legal disclaimer here. I am not here representing any organization, and my opinions are my own. And any resemblance to any real person is purely uh, coincidental. So, appreciate it, uh, there, Paul. I've got three kids now, so I'm I'm getting better and better at uh, dad jokes. Oh, good. And well, that's that is a skill that you. Uh, absolutely need to have so if <laughs> you if, if you listen to the master marty pastor marty then uh you'll you could only improve after that well pastor marty is in is in the chat here to support the debate so paul i thank you for the introduction i do have uh the link to your YouTube channel, Uncensored Pilgrims, in the description box of this video. So to anybody in the audience, if you like what you're hearing from Paul and of course, Taylor, please check the description box for their relevant links where you can find more about them. And oh yeah, so 
Donnie, sorry, I forgot to say this backstage, but I did create a handout. I don't okay. know if you saw that. Um, uh, I sent a link to your email. If you if you have a chance during the debate, if you could throw that up in the chat or just put it in the description box, it's a public link where people can can look at the handout. So, perfect. I appreciate you reminding me. So right now I've got public handouts, and I just posted the link in the in the chat. So this will be helpful, especially for your opening statement. People can can follow along. And so it's a, it's a Google uh, Doc, uh, guys, in the chat. So I just posted it. Please make sure to uh, click that and uh, have a look at it for this debate. Yeah, and I'm and proud of that. I actually tagged that on a real typewriter. So <laughs> That's impressive, Paul. That's <laughs> impressive. So, Taylor, it's good to have you back as well. You're definitely uh, no stranger to debates, nor are you a stranger to this channel. So I appreciate you being willing to engage in these important <laughs> topics. I'm excited for this specific topic. As Paul said, uh, you know, we're, we're heavy on the, on the science-related topics, biology, genetics, and so on. And we definitely want to get more uh, topics in the world of philosophy. And so I'm hoping this is the first of many on this topic. And so, Taylor, let's start. Let, let's hand it over to you. Brief introduction. How you doing tonight? A little bit about yourself and a little bit about your channel. Yeah, not too bad. Uh, thanks for hosting the debate. Um, I run a channel called uh, Snake Was Right. And uh, I have a molecular biology background. And, um, and so I try to kind of infuse uh, scientific methodology through looking at different topics. It's not always science. Um, oftentimes it's philosophy, but I, I look into things like politics as well. Um, and the, the name of the channel is about uh, how I think that the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. And so that's all that means. Um, uh, I look at uh, biblical stories and other stories through kind of a literary lens. And so I, th I think it has value through that. But other than that, I, I do focus on kind of debunking, you know, some of the literal stuff in the Bible um, and other kind of popular stuff. Um, I tackle things like uh, socialism and morality that would typically be on, um, or uh, subjective morality that would typically be on like the atheist side. So I try to beef with everyone um, and uh, try and, you know, do source methods type of stuff like that. Um, I also run a channel with my friend, uh, my best friend. Um, she is a debate coach and um, our, our channel is Debate Cafe. And we we do um, we try to do on the more formal side of debate, um, sort of like we're going to have tonight. And uh, we try to do all kinds of topics. And, and we, we've been on a break for a little bit because of the holiday season has been crazy. I've been helping my parents move, big move. Um, but uh, we'll be back as soon as we can uh, get back into the groove. And yeah, that's, that's what I do here on YouTube. All right, uh, Taylor, I appreciate the introduction. I'm sure your uh, parents appreciate all the help <laughs> you've been doing in, in terms of the big move. And so thanks again for giving us your time for tonight. And once again, I'll point out the relevant links to our awesome debaters tonight, Paul and Taylor, are in the description box. And so tonight what we have is a formal debate. And just so the audience understands the format for tonight, let me quickly go over it and then we're just going to hand it over to paul uh, paul i love the uh the, the studio there looks good and we are going to be starting with a 15 minute affirmative statement which will be from paul 
followed by a five-minute cross-examination where Taylor will, will lead the way with questions for five minutes, of course. Then we'll get a negative <clears throat> statement. This will be 18 minutes, so that'll be from Taylor. And then we'll get a five-minute cross-exam from Paul, followed by the first affirmative rebuttal. That is going to be eight minutes, and then we get a 10-minute negative rebuttal from Taylor for 10 minutes. And then we uh, conclude with a second affirmative rebuttal of five minutes, which will be from Paul. And then guys, this is where we get you involved a little bit. We're gonna have an, an audience question and answer period for about 20 minutes. And so please just make sure you're tagging me with your questions throughout the debate. Best way to tag me either at Donnie or at Standing for Truth. And that way I won't miss them. Okay, so with that out of the way, Paul, we're going to hand it over to you, and you have uh, 15 minutes. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Thanks again, Donnie. So in tonight's debate, we're going to be discussing the question, is there evidence for the existence of God? Both Taylor and I have claims that we're making that have to be supported with strong arguments and evidence. I am defending the claim that there is evidence for the existence of God, whereas my opponent will be defending the claim that there is no evidence for God, or at the very least, that no one has been able to produce any evidence for God up to this point. Now, philosophers have coined the term the problem of divine hiddenness, or in other words, why is God hidden from view rather than being openly visible at all times? And when asked what he would say uh, if and when he ever met God, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins replied, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? And he got that response from another famous atheist by the name of Bertrand Russell. And I found that a great many atheist arguments tend to boil down to this central issue. Atheists say that they want to be able to see God and in effect, they want to be able to put God into a test tube. But the fact that we can't do this should not be a source of embarrassment for Christians. The Bible actually acknowledges the fact that God hides himself. In Isaiah 45, 15, it says, Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. So what sort of evidence should we expect to find for this God of the Bible who is normally hidden from view? Let's take a practical example. Say that you are a crime scene detective, and you've been tasked by a judge to go out and collect evidence at a house to see if the house has been broken into during the night. What kind of evidence are you going to look for? Now, as a good detective, you probably know in advance what sort of clues you expect a burglar to leave behind. And let's say that you go out to this house, and in the course of investigating, you find that a door has been forced open with a crowbar, leaving shards of wood uh, scattered on the ground. And uh, you find that jewelry is missing from the master bedroom. And after interviewing the neighbors, you discover that one of the neighbors has an eyewitness report of seeing a shadowy figure run from the home in the dark of the night. So after collecting this evidence, you're gonna take all this and present it to the judge. And imagine after you hear, after the judge hears your evidence, he proclaims, I'm not convinced. You might rationally ask this judge, okay, 
what sort of evidence would you have expected us to find that we failed to find in this case? And if the judge replies, I have no idea, the burden of proof is on the person claiming that a break-in happened, and I'm just simply not convinced. Would that be a rational response on the part of the judge? Clearly not, because what can you possibly do to convince a judge who refuses to think about what counts as evidence, but then stubbornly refuses to accept all the evidence that you provide? Far too many atheists uh, act exactly like the irrational judge in this story. They can't tell us anything about what they expect to find for evidence, and yet, at the same time, they want to claim that there is no evidence for God. So I sincerely hope tonight that at a bare minimum, we will get a rational response from my opponent to this fundamental question. And with that introduction out of the way, uh, I'm going to move on to my evidences. And in my view, there are certainly far too many evidences for God to present in one debate. So I'm going to limit myself tonight to three evidences, which, when taken together, form a strong cumulative case for the existence of God. And these three are, one, the universe or nature itself, two, the uniformity of nature, and three, fulfilled prophecy. If God does exist, I would expect that I would find evidence that God created something. And furthermore, I would expect to find evidence of God's sustaining providence over that creation. And lastly, I would expect that this God would communicate with us in some way, and that that communication should show clear signs of being from God. My opponent, Taylor, in order to support his claim, will need to show that all three of my evidences are invalid. And in addition, he will need to explain what sort of evidence he has personally been looking for and failing to find as it regards the existence of God. So the first evidence tonight is the universe. And this is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. It was popularized by the famous Christian philosopher and apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig. And it's a straightforward deductive syllogism. That means that the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises. So if my, if my opponent wishes to attack the conclusion of this argument, his only rational course is to attack one or more of these two premises. And they are, one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And two, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe must have had a cause. Now, we can go further because whatever caused the universe could not rationally have been a part of the universe. Otherwise, what we're saying in effect is that the universe caused itself, which would be an illogical claim. Now, the universe is defined as the sum total of everything, which is physical in our uh, space-time-matter-energy continuum. So anything apart from that would have to be uh, not characterized by time, or in other words, eternal, and it would have to be non-physical, or also known as supernatural. And we can go even further, because uh, of all the possible candidates that would fit that description, we really only have two options. The first option would be abstract concepts, such as numbers, like the number three, or the color red, or minds. And of those two options, only minds have causal powers. So what we conclude is that whatever caused the universe had to be an eternal non-physical mind. And that gives us a very basic description of God. 
Now, the second argument, the uniformity of nature. Uh, atheists and skeptics tend to gravitate to one particular Enlightenment philosopher by the name of David Hume. And this is primarily because he was one of the first well-known skeptics and non-Christian philosophers in the Western world. But Hume actually uncovered a very serious philosophical problem for any secular atheistic worldview. And that problem is known as the problem of induction. Here it is in a nutshell. Whenever you take an individual experience and you make a generalization about the universe from that individual experience, um, that is known as inductive reasoning. For example, let's say that you've never been burned by a flame before and you stick your finger out into a flame and your finger gets burned. What you're immediately going to do is make a generalization about flame. You're going to, to assume that flame burns and you're going to believe that in the future, if you stick your finger into a flame again, you're going to get burned again. Now, this belief that the future will be like the past is known as the uniformity of nature. Now, Hume realized that from a purely rationalistic or secular viewpoint, there really is no rational basis for this belief in the uniformity of nature. If we attempt to justify our belief in uniformity based on our past experiences, saying, well, in the past, we've always assumed that the future will be like the past and it's always worked out for us. What you're actually doing is utilizing the principle of uniformity in an attempt to justify that very same principle. In other words, it is circular reasoning. And there really is no atheistic reason why we should expect uh, that the future is going to be anything like the past. But this isn't a problem for a theist. Uh, as a Christian, we believe that this universe was created by an eternal, omnipresent, um, omnipotent God, and that this universe was designed for us to inhabit. So when we observe that we live in a universe of laws that is predictable, that observation itself is evidence for the existence of God. Now, the third and final piece of evidence I'll be presenting tonight is that of fulfilled prophecy. Uh, God has demonstrated his existence to us uh, beyond reasonable doubt by announcing historical events hundreds of years prior to their occurrence. Only a supernatural being who exists outside of time could possibly have infallible knowledge of the future. Now, the historical events of the New Testament Gospels were foretold by the Hebrew prophet Isaiah around 800 years before Christ and by King David in the Psalms about a thousand years before Christ. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 and Psalm 22 both clearly describe the mission and ultimate fate of Jesus Christ. Both Isaiah's and David's words uh, in the Psalms were included in the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Both of these are known to have existed prior to the time of Jesus of Nazareth. So this removes all possible doubt. These definitely weren't written after the fact. And unfortunately, I would run out of time tonight if I tried to read through all these uh, verses uh, word by word here. But I do encourage you, the audience, to do this on your own later. But the most relevant points that Isaiah makes about Messiah uh, here are, one, that the Messiah will endure rejection and be tortured and killed on behalf of all mankind, taking our sin on himself. Two, 
he will be wrongly accused, numbered with the transgressors, even though he did no violence or deceit. Three, his torture will include being pierced. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus' hands and feet on the cross. And lastly, it says they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. That is a reference to the fact that Joseph of Arimathea uh, provided for Jesus an honorable burial after his crucifixion out of his own riches. Now, in addition to these Isaiah prophecies, we also have a quotation by Jesus himself while he's dying on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a direct quote out of Psalm 22. The amazing thing is, even though written a thousand years earlier in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 22 reads just like a poetic firsthand account of the crucifixion from Jesus' point of view. Just to read a few verses, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, the New Testament Gospel of Mark records the fulfillment of these passages, and it's attested by our earliest historical witnesses, for example, Papias, to be Mark's record of Peter's gospel. Mark was Peter's interpreter in Rome. And when we read Mark, we're really reading the gospel of Peter. According to noted biblical scholar John Wenham, the gospel of Mark could be dated as early as 45 AD, only about 10 years or so after the events, and certainly no later than just before 70 AD, which is when the Romans invaded and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. If you read Peter's own letters, specifically in 2 Peter 1.16, he tells us that he was an eyewitness to these events and that he was not following fables or legends. And we know further that Peter was willing to go to a torturous death himself at the hands of the Romans, uh, being crucified upside down in Rome, rather than to recant his eyewitness testimony. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. And I submit that we could expect no possible higher standard of evidence for the truth of the Gospels, and therefore for the existence of God, than this. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, very much for your 15-minute opening statement. Gentlemen, we are now moving into the first cross-examination round of the debate. It'll be fast-paced. Snake, you are going to lead the way for exactly five minutes. And so whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Okay, so is um, God all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful in your definition? He is. Okay, um, and perfect? Perfect. Okay. Um, and so what created God? Nothing. God has always existed. So would you say God is the cause of its own existence? Absolutely not. Uh, could you explain that? Well, anything, uh, the argument that I presented was that anything which begins to exist must have a cause. Uh, God did not begin to exist. He is the one thing that did not have a beginning. And so anything which has no beginning, conversely, also needs no cause. So I don't say that God caused himself. 
I say he is uncaused because he there was never a time when God did not exist. Uh, could you say that he is the reason he exists? Or we it, it is incoherent to even ask the question, what is the reason that God exists? Because that implies that there's a need for a cause to explain God. But God had no beginning. And something which has no beginning also needs no explanation of its existence. Okay. And um, would you say that we have free will in heaven? Uh, I do believe we have free will now and in heaven. Okay. Um, does God desire everyone to be saved? Yes. And so will everyone be saved? No. Um, and so in what sense... So wouldn't you say that God failed in his desire? No. Why not? Because it's God's desire to allow people to either respond or refuse to respond to the call that he's making on us. So I, I believe God draws each one of us to him. But I also believe that God desires genuine love and not a, you know, I talked about the hiddenness aspect. Uh, if God wanted to force himself upon us in such a way that we had no choice but to bow down right this minute, he could certainly do that. He could reveal His himself in all his glory, uh, but he's giving us a chance to respond to the draw one way or another. So that is his will. His will is to allow us to choose to accept or reject him. So his, his um, will is not being... But if if his will is also for everyone to be saved, couldn't an all-powerful and all-knowing God figure out a way to save everyone? I believe Even he has, with free will intact? Well, I don't think that is rationally defensible to try to say that free will is there and there's no choice. Uh, if there's free will, then there must be a choice. So to say that God could force everyone to, to do the right thing and at but the same not, time that's not what I asked, though. be free... Okay, sorry. What's your question? I, I wasn't referring to him forcing anyone. I'm saying that he, he could figure out a way to have everyone freely come to salvation. But that's exactly is that, what is I'm that saying. not I, within his power? That sounds incoherent to me because if it's free will, then uh, how can you guarantee that everyone will make the free choice that you want? Well, you said that free will exists in heaven, and is there sin in heaven? No. Okay, so it seems like that it is rationally possible to have free will and still have everyone making the yeah. right decisions. Yeah, that is that's interesting. I, I my personal belief on that is that we freely we freely give up our ability and our desire, more importantly, our desire to sin. So he gives us a chance to freely give up that desire and that ability to sin. And then when we make that choice, eventually when we're glorified in heaven that will be realized and we will no longer have any desire or ability to sin. So he'll take away our ability to sin. Isn't that taking away some aspect of free will? You could look at it that way, but the problem is we've made that choice that we want to give that up. So in that respect, it is still free. Um, why can't he just create beings that don't have that uh, f defect in them in the first place? Well, I don't think free still choice, retain free will. I don't consider free choice as a defect. 
if well I, I there's a, there's a defect somewhere right if if you're making a for example adam and, eve, choice. adam and eve were created perfect but they still made a free choice to disobey god so uh despite their perfection they still disobeyed so i don't believe that free uh, will itself is a defect how can perfection one final sin? question taylor one final question and then uh we'll let paul respond go ahead um do you would you still believe in god if all of your arguments presented here were shown to be um, ineffective or just insufficient in some way? Well, uh, let's let's cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> okay. okay, Paul and Taylor, thank you so much for an awesome, fast-paced five-minute cross-examination there. We're now moving into the negative constructive. And so, Taylor you have an 18-minute allotted time for this portion of the debate. So, Taylor, whenever you're ready, again, 18 minutes. The floor is yours. All right. Just setting my clock. Okay. Um, so what would a godless world look like? Um, a world where religions are just legends and there's no god who knows how best to communicate with us, who loves us, and who can do anything. Well, being absent from the world, it would look like our world. God is active in the biblical narrative. Um, he's not quite as hidden as current times um, by comparison. Um, but as soon as the, the narrative of the Bible is over, God is conspicuously absent, um, especially comparatively. Uh, there is gratuitous suffering in our world, and there appears to be no divine intervention outside of stories. Uh, this world looks exactly as it should if Christianity was a false religion. The confusing and ever-debated nature of what the Bible actually says and means is itself evidence of poor communication skills from God, which it should contradict the claimed nature of God being a perfect being who has, who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. Such a being certainly would try to communicate better than uh, disputed fragments of ancient writings. Um, so to illustrate uh, how absurd the notion of this uh, God is, uh, in the, the world that we live in, um, to assert that this world that we live in is designed for us by this all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing being, um, I'll, here I'll give a, a little analogy. So imagine someone who uh, you can add in the omni properties if you want but for the purposes of the analogy just the ability to create people and things um but uh, an all-loving father uh with the ability to create things um and maybe he installs cameras everywhere in the house so he knows everything that the kids are saying um and doing uh he creates a house he claims to love them um he knows everything they'll do. Uh, he has perfect foresight of what they'll do. Um, he builds a house for them. And it's mostly just huge empty space laced with death traps. And in a few of the rooms that aren't laced with death traps, there it's laced with Ebola and other deadly um, diseases. And he, this father installs cancer-causing light bulbs in the house. And then this father deprives his children of all education, especially in good and evil. And in fact, he installs a chip in their brains that makes them incapable of knowing good from evil unless they get a special code. He then puts this special code in an envelope 
uh, and tells them never to open it or they'll die. Then he creates some other guy who comes in and tells the kids that the dad is lying to them to keep them stupid and below him. They then decide to open the envelope and put in the code. Their eyes are open to truth and they don't die, showing that this dad was lying um, and indeed keeping them in a state of ignorance. Um, he then looks around the house and finds him and gets angry at them for not knowing the right thing to do, obey him, even though he specifically designed them unable to do this uh, and forbade them from being capable of doing this, uh, despite them giving them that opportunity that he doesn't want them to take, but also simultaneously wants them to be able to have the fruits of, um, and then lies about the consequences knowing with full certainty that they would succumb to the manipulation of this other guy that he created with full foreknowledge of his eventual tempting of the kids. He then throws the kids out into the harsh weather and forever curses them with additional physical maladies. Um, imagine whatever kind of um, mutilation you want to. Um, and he refuses to ever talk to them again. Yet, if they don't remain loyal to the, him after this, they'll be thrown in his torture dungeon for the rest of time. Anyone outside the house will also be thrown in the torture dungeon if they don't come and worship him and his house of horrors. Um, and then he prints out some vague, confusing pamphlets that get disputed and uh, in uh, among historians. And then he creates a bunch of other people that create contradictory and blasphemous pamphlets, knowing full well that they will do this, that lead people astray into his torture dungeon. So, and then to seal the deal of this, in order to pay for the people he will not torture forever, he gave birth to himself and sacrificed himself as a final blood sacrifice to himself. Uh, this is not the actions of a loving person, an all-knowing person, or an all-powerful person. Well, perhaps all-powerful, but you can have one of those, but not all the others. Um, a little bit like, um, well, well, I'll get to that. Um, so this is not the world we'd expect from an omni-being. This is the world we're expected to believe is reality, um, even though none of it can be substantiated, and itself is internally inconsistent with the claimed nature of God. Uh, the world we have does not look like this, um, but, we, well, aside from the more mythical nature of it. There, there is vast empty space that is unsuitable for life, etc. There are diseases. So this is the problem of evil, right? Um, and what we should expect from an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God is at least no gratuitous suffering because such a being would, if this world is not perfect already, we would be taking the most optimal path to perfection. And that means... Things like every single person who dies in a natural disaster, every single person, no more, no less, was necessary in order to reach the most perfect world, um, which, of course, is absurd because the specific number of mass casualties do not affect the course of history. Um, but since this supposed God is all-powerful, it could just make a world where at least childhood cancer and child abuse don't exist. Uh, we could still have free will to do things, um, but get rid of superfluous evil. Um, we could still sin against each other and not have um, child abuse. Uh, an all-knowing God would 
be able to figure out a Bible or some kind of communication strategy that was coherent and clear, not full of moral monstrosities such as slavery and genocide sanctioned by God in the Bible itself. Um, so all of the data morally and logically speaking, um, even uh, just ontologically speaking about the universe, it's explained best by reality being atheistic. Um, so this problem of evil has yet to be um, satisfied by any apologetic. Um, it's the direct and literal equivalent to starting with the assumption that the Holocaust must be morally right, and so we have to come up with some way of painting it in a good light, because, of course, the Bible commands genocide. Uh, the mere act of apologetics is, uh, I think, uh, morally um, bad. Uh, the covering up of moral atrocities in order to shift blame off of God the Creator, and of course, who else to blame but humans? Um, so morally speaking, an all-knowing, all-loving God would never produce a Bible that clearly advocates for slavery in the name of God. Uh, God knows in advance that the Bible will be interpreted this way, even if it's a wrong interpretation. So therefore, it's best-case scenario, it's bad communication. Um, worst case, it's just pure evil. Uh, so God, know, God knows this is going to happen. So he should have had contingencies to make it absolutely clear. He should have put in the Bible, no, slavery is prohibited. But in fact, it does not say this. So the, the Bible has so many apologists trying to find hidden messages against slavery, but God knows that it's going to be interpreted otherwise. Um, so he could have been more clear on this. Um, this isn't consistent with a loving or an all-knowing God. Um, so this is poor design. And related to the poor design of the Bible is poor design of the universe. Um, so God makes problem. He makes his own problems, seemingly, uh, which is inconsistent with an all-knowing, all-powerful being. Um, one is, of course, superfluous suffering. Um, an omni-god would know all counterfactuals and thus all hypothetical events. Um, he knows who's damned and who's not bef before they're ever born. So why create these people specifically in a way that he knows will doom them to eternal torture if he knows in advance who's going to uh, be saved and who's not? If there is an eventuality that God desires, why not simply manifest that end goal? Why go through an exam period? Tests are for teachers to gauge their students' progress. They're not for uh, the students. Um, and an all-knowing teacher already knows the outcome of the test. So there's no point in creating the people who are just going to go straight in the garbage bin of hell. Um, so also using the student and teacher analogy, some of the students are given cheat sheets, some of the students are given false cheat sheets, which would be analogous to other religions um, that people believe and experience just as strongly as any other. Uh, most humans ever conceived will be spontaneous abortions, um, so the ovum will not implant and will simply die, even though it's fertilized. Um, most fertilizations end in these spontaneous abortions, apparently according to God's plan. If this life is so important, then that God is willing to damn most of us who are born to eternal torture for not being in the Christian religion, why is the majority of all conceptions sent straight to the grave without any opportunity to exercise this super important free will? 
or learn the supposed evidence of this God. Um, it's pretty ludicrous um, for a all-loving God. Um, so, yeah, in this system, most people are just doomed to fail, even though it's not necessary, apparently, um, because whether the babies who die are damned or saved, apparently this whole life thing is not necessary to get to the end goal that God desires. Um, so again, poor design, not consistent with the perfect being. And it's um, really hard to understand uh, a more evil being. Uh, more bad designs are we need to kill other life to survive. God could make us photosynthesize. He could even mess with the constants in individual cells to get us enough energy if that wasn't feasible by traditional mechanics. Um, and related to that, um, just responding to something that you said about the uh, uniformity of nature. Actually, there's no there. We should expect uniformity of nature in naturalism. That's what the entire thing is built upon, and we observe day to day. That, that that prediction keeps on coming true. There's, it's never not come true. Sure, we can't know that it won't uh, change tomorrow or in the next five minutes, but so far it's consistent. Um, but or theism, the existence of a God, actually we should expect miracles and violations of the um, con uh, uniformity of nature. Only theism is capable of violating the uniformity of nature. So this uh, problem of induction that you bring up actually is more consistent with atheism than theism. Um, let's see here. Responding to uh, most of what you said, um, it seems like you're... So you said God uh, can't be put in a test tube. Um, well, so, and, and you admit he's hidden. It seems like you're saying here that he can't be studied. So this to me is an admission that there's no evidence for it. Um, then you go on to say how there, there is evidence. You give an analogy of a crime scene and a judge denying clear evidence. I didn't hear any evidence, so I don't know how that analogy is meaningful. Um, the so evidence is a body of facts um you can have some pieces of evidence that are consistent with some things and not others um but what we have with uh, christianity is if you want to call it evidence it's not indicative of any god or any christian god because it's it actually doesn't point to anything in particular because it, an analogy using the crime scene thing is we find 50 people's fingerprints at the crime scene and you want to cherry pick Todd's fingerprints and you say, we have Todd's fingerprints. This is evidence that Todd committed the crime. Mean, meanwhile, we have 49 other people's fingerprints. So the method of cherry picking one set of fingerprints is going to give us mutually contradictory um, conclusions and thus it is not actually evidence because it doesn't actually indicate anything in any particular way. Same with anecdotes and um, history, uh, holy books from history. If we use that 
um, really low bar of evidence to say that that's evidence, that method is going to lead us to all kinds of false gods. So it's not actually indicative of anything um, because the, the false answers also have the same standard of evidence. And um, so that's uh, incoherent. Um, so let's see, I guess I'll address the, your second point now. Um, the, right, they are, no, the third point, uh, fulfilled prophecy. This was your closest thing to evidence. Um, by, oh, by the way, you said all, I have to disprove all three of your, um, points of evidence, but you said together they make a cumulative case, which means it should imply that all three are needed. So if I knock out just one, the cumulative case is no longer there. I'm not sure why you said later that all three need to be invalidated. That would mean each one can stand independently, which is contrary to what you said er, um, earlier. But to address the Kalam cosmological argument, I believe was your first point. Um, what what begins must have a cause, and and the, it's claimed that the universe began. Well, uh, physicists don't think that the universe actually began, so that knocks that out. Similarly to God, the universe could simply be eternal and have no cause. Um, also, I didn't see any. Even if we grant that the universe had a cause, I didn't see the. Uh, reasoning that led us to think that this must be an eternal mind. This is a fallacy of, um, it's affirming the consequent where, because you have a Y um, effect, X must be the cause, even though A, B, and C can also get Y effect. Um, let's see. And so the prophecy uh, that you gave is ex it's not a prophecy because the people who wrote the New Testament could simply just make it fit the Old Testament. Other prophecies are just vague or in inevitable. Some city, some ancient city falls. Almost all of them have. Um, and there, there are also false prophecies from the mouth of Jesus himself. He said that Truly, I tell you, someone who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. That clearly did not happen. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of um, problematic contradictions here. And no evidence, cherry-picking of data, fallacies. Um, so if, if God exists... There should be evidence uh, and clear evidence. And seconds. Uh, there is no evidence, and therefore it's reasonable to conclude there is no God. Okay. Thank you very much, Taylor, for that eight-minute uh, negative constructive. And so now we're moving into a five-minute cross-exam. And, Paul, you are going to uh, lead the way asking questions for this specific round. Gentlemen, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Okay, uh, first question to Taylor. Um, in your statement now, uh, just now, you've made multiple references to the concept of unnecessary or gratuitous suffering. Now, 
My question to you is, uh, on what basis do you claim to know, uh, in an exhaustive sense, what suffering is or is not gratuitous? Um, well, if the goal of life is to give beings free will, there are certain evils that uh, shouldn't be in the equation, such as taking out children, at the very least. Because you want everyone to have the same opportunities to exercise their free will, come to know God. Um, the other basis I, I also mentioned, which is things like mass casualties. If a whole family is wiped out versus one of the kids survives um, among thousands and thousands of other people hit by a tsunami, that's not going to affect the course of history in any meaningful way. If we, if but apparently, if this is the perfect way to the plan, it, the death toll cannot be one or more deviation, because otherwise, that's not then that's different than it, it could have been optimized. Is it, is it possible, assuming that a an omnipotent and uh, omniscient God did hypothetically exist, would it be possible for this God to know uh, things that you don't know, including? Uh, reasons for suffering, which you erroneously are calling gratuitous, is it possible that an omniscient God could know more than you do? It's logically possible. It doesn't seem evidentially possible because what difference would it make if a whole family versus 90% of the family is wiped out? Well, um, and that, and that would be a circular argument as well to just assume that he has a reason and it's good enough. So that's well, fallacious. So we can't assume that. Okay. Um, do you believe in any supernatural realities or do you believe in strict materialism? Um, I would be inclined to ask you to clarify, but I don't personally, I don't believe in anything that I would call supernatural. So you believe in only the existence of atoms, molecules, space, and forces. Is that correct? Uh, there could be more than that, but if there's some new exotic particle or just thing in general, I would be understanding that in terms of mechanisms and right. um, uh, that's that's the key naturalistic word. Naturalistic things. That, that's the key word is mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So in such a world, it, it would seem to me that there is no possibility for free will. Do you believe in free will? No, I think it's an incoherent concept. Okay. If free will is incoherent and we are unable to make choices which are truly free, in other words, if our choices are determined, in what sense does it make, in what sense are you able to call anything good or evil? Um, because it doesn't matter whether the choice is determined or not. The effect is either good or evil. So uh, someone dying is bad, whether it's caused by a robot or a rock slide or someone making that choice. And I think choices can still be made. It's just that choices are determined by the level of information and awareness that a person has. Okay. Um, let's see. I want to see if there's anything else I, I wanted to ask here. Uh, I think you answered some of the things I was going to ask there. Um, 
Do you believe that the universe began to exist? Um, well, we were talking a little bit before the show. I'm not like a big into astrophysics. What I know of it is that currently physicists are thinking the the universe definitely possibly is eternal. Um, and it's like the big bounce or something like that. And so I would be inclined to listen to the physicists um, about that. All right. I think I'm about out of time. Donnie, is that right? That's right. We got about 10 seconds left. So what we'll do is uh, wrap it up there. Gentlemen, I appreciate the uh, cordial and uh, professional back and forth here in the cross-examination rounds of the debate. So now we're moving into the first affirmative rebuttal. And in the uh, first affirmative, we've got Paul and uh, in terms of time, eight minutes. So whenever you're ready, Paul, we are going to give you the floor for eight minutes. Whenever you're ready. Did you say eight minutes? Yes. Yeah. Eight yeah. minutes. Very good. All right. All right. So um, just to try to go back and, and address some of the things that were said in Taylor's uh, opening, um, it's I, I actually like the fact that he used an analogy, even though I don't really uh, agree with that analogy, so to speak. But um, we both are a kindred spirit in this in the fact that we like to use analogies, at least. Um it, it's from what I was able to tell, it sounded like the majority of Taylor's uh, objection to the existence of God um, is that he expects God to have created a perfect world. And his observation that we do not observe a perfect world, we observe a world that has death, suffering and evil in it. For Taylor, that represents to him um evidence against the existence of God. Now, I will note that the topic of our, of our debate tonight is uh, evidence, is there evidence for God? Now, Taylor, you asked me uh, why I said that you had to tear down all three of my evidences, and it goes back to the topic of our debate, is there evidence for the existence of God? Uh, if, if even one of my arguments uh, stand, then then you would be admitting that there is at least one piece of evidence for the existence of God. So that's why you would have to tear down all three in, in order to make your case. Uh, but you even need to go further. You would need to explain what evidence you expect to see that you fail to find uh, in, this un in this universe. So, uh, you know, the topic, is there evidence against the existence of God, is a, is a slightly different debate topic, and uh, it, maybe it's something we can talk about in the future. Uh, I, I definitely don't agree with your interpretation of those things. Uh, if I understood the gist of it, Taylor is saying that if God did exist, he would expect to see a world without, quote-unquote, gratuitous suffering. The problem is, by, by Taylor's own admission, it's entirely logical, logically possible that uh, an omniscient God could know reasons for suffering that he doesn't know. So by Taylor's own admission, he's not in a position to actually assign this claim uh, of gratuitous suffering. The, the fact is, to be able to claim that suffering is gratuitous, you yourself would need to be God. You would need to be omniscient. Uh, you would need to be in the place of God 
in order to know whether suffering was gratuitous or not. So the fact that Taylor admits that it is logically possible that such a God could exist uh, really defeats the force of this claim that we should expect to see uh, a world without suffering. Uh, it is ironic, however, that um, he seems to have missed the point that this is, in fact, the world that God created. God did create a world without death, suffering, and evil of any kind. Uh, in one in his cross-examination, Taylor attempted to uh, insinuate that free will is some type of defect. Um, yet, I, I don't view it as a defect. I view it as the greatest uh, thing that God could bestow upon us. Because without that ability to make a choice, we are reduced to what Taylor himself believes that we are, which is automatons. Taylor doesn't believe we have free choices because he believes only in matter in motion. Um, and that presents many problems for an atheistic worldview, and it, and it very much presents problems for assigning this idea of good and evil, uh, you know, claiming that something is evil, and then at the same time saying that uh, it's completely inevitable because everything is determined by biology and physics, uh, seems a bit incoherent to my mind. Um, let's see, he mentioned um, that God lied because Adam and Eve didn't die. Actually, in the Hebrew, uh, what it states is that uh, the, the more literal way to translate that passage is dying you will die. In other words, what God was telling Adam and Eve is, if you sin against me, if you disobey, you will enter into a progressive process of death. Um, obviously, they didn't die right there on the spot, but what, what happened at the time of the fall and the curse is that uh, Adam and Eve began the process of dying. Now, because they were genetically perfect, it took them nearly a thousand years to complete that process, which is uh, pretty impressive in and of itself. Uh, but but his claim that they did not die is incorrect. Uh, if he believes that they that they didn't die, I would love to know where they are now. <laughs> but uh, but seriously, uh, that's that's really not a good argument. They uh, did begin the process of death at the fall. Uh, he says that apologetics is morally bad, um, but he's doing apologetics right now just for the atheistic worldview. Um, he asked the question, why did God create people who he knows will not be saved? Well, again, this goes back to the question of omniscience. Does Taylor claim to know that a person, uh, that does, does, claim, does Taylor claim to know all of the consequences of an entire life of a person? So, for example, um, someone back on my family tree might not have been saved, but without them on this earth, I wouldn't be here today, and I am saved. So uh, the point I'm making here is that God's omniscience is much greater than Taylor seems to want to, to accept, and God's ability to understand the full future consequences of everything that happens is far beyond anything that we could even comprehend. So it's just, it's just rather silly to claim that we could know suffering is evil. The problem of evil is... It's it's a very big problem emotionally for people. We want to know why there is evil, and the Bible does give us an answer to that. It's because of the fall and the curse, but God also provided the solution to this problem as well. For an atheist, the problem of evil is, is the real problem because atheists, including Taylor himself 
as he's admitted tonight, they believe in evil and they believe in good. And yet they have no standard for this. They have no objective reason for saying that something could be evil or good to begin with. Um, in his analogy, uh, he said that tests are not for students. They're for the teacher. Incorrect. Uh, I would love you to, to try to get a, a class of students through their education, never requiring them to study for a single test. Uh, tests are not merely for the teacher to find out what the student knows. They are also for the student to have to prove what they know. And in order to do that, they have to study and they have to work. So this, this life that we're in is a kind of test, but it's not just a test for God to know our heart. He already knows our heart. But it's our opportunity to respond to God and to uh, prove ourselves in action. Uh, now, he responded to the, um, let me go in order. He responded to the uh, Kalam cosmological argument by claiming that physicists don't believe the universe began. That is incorrect. Due to the second law of thermodynamics, physicists believe that the universe had a beginning. It is logically impossible for a closed system, according to the, shouldn't say logically, scientifically impossible, for a closed system uh, to just move on in eternal motion. Um, there's no seconds. such thing as um, an eternal motion or perpetual motion. So due to the second law of th thermodynamics, it did have a beginning because it hasn't ended yet. Um, also, there is the logical fact that an actual infinite series of past events is logically impossible for the same reason that you can't count up to infinity. You also can't uh, count backward from infinity. The fact that we've reached the present moment uh, means that there had to be a first moment. If if every if the uh, past history of this universe is eternally long, then we never could have reached this present moment because you can't can't count down from infinity. So the universe had a beginning. Um, and Paul, you got about five seconds left. Five seconds. Okay, we'll we'll uh, move on from there, and I'll I'll pick it up in my final statement. Okay, perfect, Paul. I appreciate that uh, rebuttal, the first affirmative rebuttal. We're now moving into the negative rebuttal, and Taylor, for for your rebuttal, you have ten minutes, and so whenever you're ready, we are going to give you the floor, and on your first word, I'll start the timer. All right, so I guess we'll start with the Kalam cosmological argument. So this is unsound. Because I don't know where your claim that uh, physicists claim that the universe began. There is a beginning to the Big Bang, um, but no, ph physicists do not say that the universe needed to have a beginning. In fact, the most standard models include an eternal universe, Um and they also refute the things that uh, people like William Lane Craig say about um, an infinite series. Mathematicians talk about this a lot. Um, if you're if you're looking for a, a really good compilation of physicists and mathematicians and philosophers on the Christian and atheist sides, both all talking about how this actually is not a problem in philosophy or mathematics or physics, um, and they all talk about how the standard models include an eternal universe that's fine it doesn't violate the law of thermodynamics because it is the same amount of energy it's just in a way it's uh it was expanded this way contracted expanded this way um it's all the same amount of energy just uh, moved and um, compiled in different ways 
Um, so the Kalam is unsound, nor does, even if we accept it, does that get us to a mind being necessary, the necessary cause of the universe. So cause of the universe is different than cause of the Big Bang, because there could, there's most standard models, if not all, um, do not say that the Big Bang is the entire universe or the start of the universe. Um, there's There was pre-time even, to whatever um, extent that makes sense. Um, they also talk about infinite series. Um, just because you have an infinite series of events doesn't mean that a particular event cannot proceed in a particular direction. And if you're going to say that this is a problem with an eternal universe, this is also a problem for an eternal God, because if God eternally existed, there's no point in which God could have decided to create or cause anything. Um, that's also a problem with the definition of God. If God is a perfect being, there is no possibility by definition of change, because that would mean he's not perfect. If he desires a change, if he enacts a change of some kind, that, mean he that means he lacks something, which means he's no longer perfect. So it's a contradiction in terms. The fact that we're even here is evidence against um, a God creating us, uh, per at least a perfect omni-God of Christianity. Um, so to address um, the uh, all three evidence, the cumulative evidence thing, um, if, if you're saying that each one of these itself is a case for, is evidence for a God, um, then I'll accept the challenge. Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to try and <laughs> disprove all of them, but anyway, but my understanding is that you said they make a cumulative case, which to me means that only together do they make a case, not separately, but that's just a point of clarification. Um, as far as the uniformity of nature, you didn't show that this is only possible with a god. Um, I discussed that it's um, the only way that we would see violations of this would be with a god. Um, and you did um, bring up some skepticism of whether how, how we can know that there actually is uniformity of nature, um, but that doesn't actually prove the conclusion you want to make, which is that God is the only way that that can happen. We might not be able to confirm that we're in a uniformity of nature. All evidence says that we are. There, not a single piece of evidence says that we're not. There's just the possibility that we're wrong. Um, so you didn't you didn't really make a case there, um, because those that's a completely different point than whether uniformity of nature is solely or like ninety nine percent probable probability of um, being only possible through God. As far as fulfilled prophecies, still. Uh, nothing given, just basically the sequel take the New Testament, um, taking cues from the Old Testament and conforming the expectations to, to the old one. That's like saying the conclusion of Harry Potter was a prophetic um, prediction of the first Harry Potter. Um, did I say that the last Harry Potter? Um, yeah, the ending does not predict the beginning. It follows from it. Um, plus, we have that failed prophecy. Jesus said he would uh, 
come back into his kingdom before any of his audience before some of his audience would die that did not happen that that's a very important prophecy that should have come true from the lips of of the god um how much time do i have um so to clarify well to, to sum up we didn't hear any evidence um and and again, to explain, evidence has to be, it doesn't have to be conclusive or absolutely exclusively indicative of something, but it does have to indicate something. So if if your evidence is cherry-picked, which is a fallacy, um, then that it's, it's um, appear, erroneously appearing to indicate something. But this method, this low standard of evidence, would lead us to mutually contradictory answers. So it's uh, so when you take the body of evidence, which would exclude cherry picking, the, the body of facts, which is the whole evidence, then this illusion disappears, and it's so it's not so the one cherry picked example is not evidence. Um, it's the body of all things, which would exclude cherry picking. Um, I didn't claim that we need to be living in a perfect world i just um i did say that it's we either need to be in a perfect world or on our way to the perfect world so god is setting up the best path towards that um and that would necessarily um n uh, require no gratuitous suffering um from a, a loving god um so the rebuttal to that was well couldn't god know something you don't know pretty pretty much anything i there could be something that i don't know there's no reason to think that that's the case again there's no evidence that that's the case and the insinuation that that is the case is a fallacious circular reasoning just assuming that there's a god assuming that he has a, a reason and assuming that it's good for no reason just because it's a logical possibility is not evidence and it's not a powerful argument either um but i can contradict this idea that we don't know that there that it, there's not gratuitous suffering because this world apparently exists because of um god values us exercising free will but again like i said most people um most conceptions that ever are done are uh, spontaneous abortions so that means a majority of the souls under the christian worldview don't even have a, a way to exercise free will so god is either throwing them in hell or he's fast-tracking them to heaven both ways show and we heard that heaven has free will in it so there's no logical reason why um we need suffering to be tied to free will. Um, the other thing is Adam and Eve are not representatives of us. They can't, they shouldn't be determining um, whether or not we're sinners. Um, either God made an unfair design by putting all our fate on them who don't represent us, or all humans are created inherently flawed, which is not something that we chose. Um, and it's possible for God to have created us good with free will and not choose sin. And you said it's possible for God also to take away this ability. So why install it in us in the first place? 
Um, so also good and evil can exist without free will. It's, it's not, um, it's not something that requires, I do, again, I don't think free will is a coherent concept. I don't know what it means. Either your actions have a cause or they don't have a cause, in which case they're random. And so what meaning does a random choice that comes into your head have? Someone doesn't choose to be evil or they don't choose to like a certain thing. That means that they would have the will to choose to like something, which means that they already like it. So it's an infinite regress of will, determining will, determining will. It makes no sense. Um, and the, we can refute this claim that we don't know there could be uh, a way to get around unnecessary suffering because God knows 20 seconds. All of the counterfactuals in his head. He doesn't have to run the actual experiment. He knows the results beforehand. He doesn't have to create the people who are going to be tortured in hell in order to know who's going to pass the test. Um, I, I myself am a uh, moral realist, so perhaps another time we could discuss the uh, objective basis for morality. I believe it's in logic. Um, God would need to have moral reasoning or else it's just arbitrary. So this is not a case for theism either. Um, Five seconds. Discussion Taylor. for another day. Okay, gentlemen, uh, that concludes the roughly 10-minute negative rebuttal. We have one final portion for the debate before we move into a 20-minute audience Q&A. And so, Paul, you get the second affirmative rebuttal, and that is five minutes. Whenever you're ready, Paul, I'll start the timer on your first word. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. And uh, let me just utilize this final portion here to try to draw together the, the threads of where we've come in this debate and uh, what's been said and um, wh what arguments were made and, and how they were responded to. So, um, you know, I started out by saying that I hoped we would get a very clear answer from my opponent of what sorts of evidence he has personally been looking for uh, and failing to find as it regards the existence of God. And unfortunately, I don't believe we've gotten a clear response tonight to that question which makes it very hard for my opponent to then claim that there is no evidence. To know whether there's evidence, you must know what evidence would look like. The closest thing to an answer that I've heard is that my opponent believes that uh, if God existed, we should live in a world which is, in his words, on the way. Now, it doesn't have to be the best possible world, but we have to be on the way to the best possible world. Uh, but I have news for my opponent and for the audience tonight. That is exactly what God did. We are on the path to the best possible world. And that best possible world is the world where the greatest number of people freely choose to accept the salvation that God has provided. And so that is uh, that is the world that we're working toward Um atheists tend to want to see that world realized, that perfect world realized immediately, but they, there is no logical reason why uh, we can't say that God would be on a process of bringing us into that state, which is what the Bible teaches. Regarding the Kalam cosmological argument, my opponent has claimed that the universe did not begin to exist, uh, contrary to logical evidence that I presented which is that an actual infinite series of events is logically impossible and that you cannot count 
down from infinity and reach uh, reach the present moment. Um, that argument wasn't really responded to. Uh, the claim that the universe didn't need to have a beginning because allegedly scientists don't believe that the Big Bang was the beginning. Um, again, that runs afoul of the second law of thermodynamics. There are oscillating models uh, out there that claim to say that there was something before the Big Bang. But even those models, in the words of the scientists who created them, I'm not a Big Bang believer myself, but even these scientists admit that there is no way around the beginning of the universe. Uh, there is no mechanism to reverse the second law of thermodynamics, which states that all energy is moving toward an unusable state. So the fact that we haven't reached that state, it's also known as heat death. The fact that we haven't reached heat death yet is proof that the universe did have a beginning. Uh, my second argument, uh, my opponent responded that um, the uniformity of nature should be expected under naturalism, but not theism. That has it backwards. Naturalism is a philosophy which assumes the uniformity of nature, and it adds an additional assumption in there as well, which is outside the, the, the scope of this debate, and that additional assumption is called uniformitarianism. But that's a separate issue uh, to this debate. But he's incorrect to say that it fits with naturalism. Rather, naturalists simply assume without any foundation the uniformity of nature. Theists have an explanation for it. Uh, naturalists simply assert it and assume it with no explanation. Uh, he states that we should expect miracles miracles uh, on a theistic worldview. Well, uh, read the Bible. The Bible's full of miracles. Miracles have happened, and I believe they continue to happen. So, uh, yes, I agree that we should expect miracles if God uh, exists. And that leads us to my final argument, which I presented, which is the miracle known as fulfilled prophecy. My opponent claimed that I cherry picked, but he didn't actually respond to the evidence that I provided there. Um, I'm not sure whether he's well, I, I do know what he's claiming because he said that the people who wrote the New Testament could have simply twisted their words to make them fit the Old Testament prophecies. So that implies that my opponent does accept that the Old Testament prophecies were written prior to the time of Christ. Uh, but it doesn't explain why Peter, who claimed to be an eyewitness, was willing to go to his death rather than to recant his testimony. And we know that that's what he did. Um, if you if you look at the testimony of Pliny the Younger, for example, writing to Emperor Trajan, we learn that the Romans were pardoning Christians freely if they would simply recant their Christianity. Peter chose not to do that, and that's extremely strong evidence that Peter did not twist his gospel to deliberately deceive people into thinking that the prophecies were fulfilled. Men do not die for what they know to be a hoax. So that's how I ended my opening statement. That's how I will end my uh, final statement here. I would uh, ask everyone in the audience to consider these arguments, consider what I've said, consider what my opponent has said. Uh, and I would urge the Christians who are watching to pray, uh, not only for my opponent, but for anyone watching this who has not made up their mind yet about God and about uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, uh, Donnie, again, I want to thank you for having me here. And I look forward to our question and answer session. Paul, I appreciate your uh, second rebuttal there. Second affirmative rebuttal to be specific. Five minutes. Gentlemen, 
excellent debate. We've had a fantastic audience, 130 plus people live, really enjoying this professional exchange on the important question, is there evidence for the existence of God? I also really appreciated and enjoyed the fast-paced format and just the really formal nature of it. And so with that, gentlemen, we are going to move into our Q&A portion. The audience was really engaged in this debate. So lots of side live chat debates going on and therefore lots of questions. And so what I want to like do, that. yeah, it's a lot of passion uh, in terms of this important topic. So uh, what I'd like to do, actually, firstly, Paul, I'm going to post again your handout into the chat as we do these live. And so people come and go. Anybody who has just gotten here. The handout is now posted in the chat. And so what I'd like to do for the 20 minutes, if it's okay with you gentlemen, is for each question, let's say the question's for Paul, we'll give Paul a one minute to respond. And then Taylor, you get one minute, but then Paul gets the final minute. So that's basically three minutes per question. Can, and can I just ask, you know, it's up to you if you want to do it that way. I'm also okay just letting it be the two minutes. And, and I don't mind if the question's for me, I don't mind letting Taylor have the last word on it. If okay. you just want to let it that way, we can get more questions in. If, I love it. if, if it's okay by you. And if we've got a lot of questions we need to get through. I'm happy with that Taylor. If, if that works for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, here we go. I appreciate that. That'll give us lots of time for questions. I don't want to be overly strict, so I will time each question, but you know, if you're going a, a few seconds over the minute mark, I'll just kind of say, wrap it up. And, and that'll allow us to move on. So, okay, first question for the night comes in from Echoing Erudite. I appreciate it. And question is for Snake. Existence is full of sophisticated and complex structures from the start. If no God, can you show sophisticated and complex structures coming from anywhere but a mind? Well, for example, um, experimental evolution is... Um, and evolution simulators actually can create more complex structures than uh, minds, human minds can. Um, the and obviously those structures are complex. You can have animal evolution simulators. Um, artificial intelligence uses the same thing. They have to uh, mute basically mutate the program um, and teach it to uh, be intelligent, but um, engineers can't actually write that code. They have to put it through a process of evolution. So uh, it's actually more powerful than intelligent design. Um, there's also evolution simulators that simulate structures. We can watch organisms evolve structures that are complex as well, um, especially that uh, pesky algae that we debated a little month or two ago. Um, yeah, and there's no reason to assume that it, that something came from a mind either. Okay. Taylor, thank you very much for your response. Paul, you get a minute and then we'll move on to the next question. Go ahead. Uh, the, the most complex and biologically realistic evolution simulator ever created is called Mendel's accountant. And Mendel's accountant shows without any shadow of a doubt that evolution uh, is not able to build complexity through mutations plus natural selection, plus genetic drift. Uh, 
it's it's in the peer-reviewed literature. Dr. Robert Carter, uh, Dr. John Sanford, and others have written on this. And now, you know, the, the the design argument, the teleological argument, is not one that I employed tonight in in the debate. So this question kind of goes outside the scope of the debate. But but just to respond to what was said, yes, uh, there is a very accurate, biologically accurate evolution simulator, and it's called Mendel's Accountant. Okay, appreciate it there, Paul. And before we move on to the next question, uh, Doki Doki Bible Club, uh, thank you so much. And he says, check out Paul's podcast here. And so these are the links in the description box. Again, we do these live. So anyone who's uh, just gotten here, excellent debate tonight. And here are the relevant links to Uncensored Pilgrims and also uh, Snake Was Right's channel. And so, okay, question two. So do I get a response to the, that last one? I, I think well, I think what we were doing now was basically just one minute each. So let's one minute say, each. And so if the questions for uh, Paul Snake, then you would get the last minute. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I mean, unless you guys wanted to do, if, go back if, to the three minutes. If, if Taylor has, if if Taylor wants to say one more thing, let him go ahead and do it. That's fine by me. Yeah, I did, I did have okay. a response. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. because um, so so that didn't address the successful evolution simulators, but Mendel's accountant is extremely uh, inaccurate in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, it it has fixation set at um, uh, such a setting that it only fixates genes one at a time, which is completely biologically inaccurate. And um, it has set um, intentionally zero beneficial mutations, so it's extremely inaccurate in those are two major ways but there, there's other ways okay thank you taylor what we'll do um gentlemen because i just looked through uh the pile of questions that we have they're 99 of them for taylor <laughs> so you're in the hot seat tonight <laughs> so what we'll do <laughs> is we'll have so taylor will get the first minute paul gets a minute and then taylor to be fair will give you 30 seconds and so that's basically two minutes and a half per question we'll be able to get through uh quite a few so okay moving on to the next question comes in from Daniel Eldridge. Appreciate it. Question for Taylor. Stalin, Mussolini are just two of many atheists who were mass murderers. With the amount of death caused by only two atheists, why would a world without God be better? Um, well, that doesn't really comment on atheism or theism. So that's a problem with socialism, which I am against uh i was a former socialist which is one reason i'm pretty passionate about it because i managed to convince myself out of the cult um so just because people do bad things doesn't mean that that's the cause of atheism um basically what these guys did also was set up their own state religion um I don't, I haven't looked into whether Mussolini was an atheist or not, actually, but their, their evil was not motivated by atheism. Um, but again, we wouldn't expect to see that kind of gratuitous suffering in a world where an all loving God existed because none of that is necessary. Um, to get to a point, uh, to explain what I mean meant earlier by, uh, 10 seconds basically god can skip all that and just take the people who he knows will already be saved and skip to the end okay thank you taylor uh paul over to you you got about a minute 
Uh, well, I believe that the we, we need to look for the worldview as the reason why people take the actions that they do uh, rather than their their government system, whether it be socialism or uh, whatever the case may be. I, I don't think socialism was the reason why uh, Stalin was a mass murderer. I think it's because, according to Stalin, he read The Origin of Species and was convinced that life was meaningless and worthless, and he behaved in accordance with that belief. Um, according to Taylor's view, however, uh, he doesn't believe that Stalin had any choice in the matter. So calling it evil is still kind of a head-scratcher to me. Uh, Stalin was just doing what all things do, which is to follow the laws of physics and chemistry. Appreciate it, Paul. And Taylor, you get the last 30 seconds. Go ahead. All right. So I, I don't think I actually answered the, the last part of the question. Why would a world without a God be better? I don't think that that necessarily would be the case. Depends on the God. Um, but I think a world without religion would be better because I think a world where we know the truth is better. Um, and because we because of such a low standard of evidence, we have people going around thinking, not having good ways of um, assessing evidence, and they're able to be tricked by people like socialists like Stalin and Mussolini and Hitler and Mao, um, who uh, take advantage of people not being able to uh, well know the truth or have good source methods. So you said socialism. Ten seconds. Uh, Stalin wasn't a mass murderer because of socialism. Well, this required the mass murder of people to get resources. Stalin also didn't follow evolution. He had Lysenkoism, which rejected Darwinian evolution. Um, and evil exists in a deterministic world because we can communicate what good and evil are to each other and we can learn from each other. Okay. Thank you, Paul and Taylor. Next question comes in from actually, before we get to this one, we do have a question for Paul. So this one comes in from. Brooklyn Lou, thank you so much. And Brooklyn is asking, Paul, what does it matter if the universe began to exist or not? If the universe began to exist, how does this prove God? Um, well, I would certainly, you know, suggest that maybe this person came in late and maybe they didn't hear my opening statement. That my opening statement is where I answered that very question. Um, it's a deductive syllogism. So uh, the conclusion follows from the premises. Uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. So that's why it matters. If the universe began to exist, it needs a cause. From nothing, nothing comes. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, Taylor, you got a minute? Go ahead. Um, so that syllogism doesn't ex um, establish why uh, a eternal mind or a mind at all is necessary as the cause. Um, so that that doesn't explain how that that pr proves God, even if we accept the premise that the universe began to exist, because there are other eternal possibilities that aren't minds. Um, this could be a pocket universe created by a black hole, as some physicists are um theorizing so we could just be a part of another universe um, conserving energy from that universe so it doesn't violate the law of thermodynamics just because the energy started in a dense state and is going toward entropy and there could be something outside of that as well um so 
Yeah, it, it's it's um, the fallacy of affirming the consequent to say that therefore, because the universe has a cause, I want this cause to be a mind. Therefore, it was a mind. There, there are other po more other possibilities. So you can't use just the consequent to affirm the, the one uh, choice that you want. Okay, thank you, Taylor. Paul, this one was for you. So if you'd like, uh, you know, a final 30 seconds to respond, go ahead. Um, well, I did address what Taylor just said in my opening statement. Um, I believe Taylor is pulling a little bit of a bait and switch here as he's sort of equivocating on the word universe. I defined the universe as the sum total of all that is physical and all that is in our space-time matter continuum. That's everything. So uh, that's a closed system by definition. And talking about the universe created by a big by a black hole, that implies there's some physical existent black hole. That's that would be part of the universe. So this is a this is a bait and switch here. Okay, thank you very much there, Paul, for the final word. Next question comes in from Steve Christie from the Born Again RN YouTube channel. Much appreciated. And question for Taylor. If there is nothing more than material, why do you believe your own rejection of God is true? And why is there something rather than nothing? Not sure how to answer the first part. Why do we believe my rejection of God is true? Is this a question about how I can believe anything is true or how I can ha be self-aware of my own observations? Um, not sure, but... Um, to, to best answer, why do I believe in my own re rejection is because I'm privy to my own thoughts. I observe my thoughts. Uh, I, I don't know how else to answer that. Um, and why is there something rather than nothing? It's a good question. Even if someone can't answer it, doesn't mean the answer is therefore by default to God, because why is there a God rather than a not a God? It's the same skepticism would, would come up for that question. Personally, I've been plagued by this question uh, because it's just an uncanny, eerie thing that you think about um, sometimes late at night. But what I've come to understand is there's some kind of uh, impossible set of uh, attributes that true nothingness 10 seconds itself is somehow contradictory and thus is incoherent and illogical and just can't exist by definition. Um, physicists have other interpretations, but uh, the, not answering the question still doesn't prove a God either. Okay. Taylor, thank you. Uh, Paul, you got about a minute. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I would I would definitely disagree that the concept of nothing is incoherent. Uh, it's certainly logically possible that nothing could exist. Um, so, but I mean, certainly we Christians have the question, why does God exist? But the thing is, God didn't have a beginning, so it's kind of meaningless to ask that question as it relates to God. On the other hand, the universe did have a beginning for the reasons that I that I already stated. So, it is meaningful to ask why the universe, what caused the universe. Thank you very much, Paul. Taylor, you so, can have the final 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, to clarify, um, my thought on that uh, basically boils down to if nothing, true nothingness, 
you know, you say it's logically possible. We can imagine true nothingness. If that ever existed at any point, or if that was even a possibility, nothing could ever happen in that universe. It's not even a universe. It's nothing. So nothing could change. Nothing could happen. It will remain nothing forever. And yet something is here. Therefore, nothingness was never even was never on the table. It was never on the menu. <laughs> Uh, so that to me indicates that there's some kind of maybe physical problem with nothingness even existing because it's not possible to have ever existed in this universe. Okay. Thank you. Next question comes in from Steven Tibbetts and uh, another question for Taylor. And so Steven is asking, is your version of an all loving God, one that would allow no free will? and force people to love and worship him. If someone chose evil, is it then God's fault? Go ahead, you got a minute. So uh, I was thought I was pretty clear about this. I don't think that God should be forcing people to love and worship him. That sounds more like socialism and Stalinism. Uh, and that would be a bad thing. Um, and what I was referring to is several times is a world where people have this free will, whatever that means. Um, but indulging in that worldview, people would have free will and still choose right. That's apparently that exists in heaven. Um, so if God is creating people who have free will but make wrong choices he's creating them in a way such that they don't understand what they're doing they have some kind of will that's what i was talking about with the infinite regress they have a will to do evil but where did that will come from why would someone choose if they're making a, a libertarian free will choice if you choose evil that means that your will is already for evil so what Ten determined seconds. that will when did you decide that your will was for evil well you must have willed for evil so it's an infinite regress that makes no sense the creator put that in somehow uh so it is god's fault because he created you that way he knows it's going to happen he could have done something else yet doesn't okay paul over to you you got about a minute Whenever you're ready, go ahead. Free will is determined by a type of causation known as agent causation, which is non-deterministic. Taylor's confusion about this is because he's trying to apply the attributes of determinism where they don't belong into free will, into agent causation. So asking the question, what determined that free choice is a is a inherent contradiction of terms if it's a free choice it was not determined if it was determined it was not free thank you paul taylor you get 30 seconds starting now go ahead um if it's not determined then it's random so how is that any more meaningful or a free choice if it's just kind of you're just born with a certain will or it's just randomly determined or it's not even determined. It just is something. I, determinism is far more meaningful because the, then there's an actual reason. I have a certain set of knowledge. Therefore, I went with the best choice that my brain is capable of modeling. I have some kind of defect in my understanding. Therefore, 
I made the wrong choice. That makes a lot more sense than uh, it's just not caused. It, it, it's, I don't even know Five what seconds. you mean by a free choice if it's does if it's non-deterministic because otherwise it's random what what meaning does that have okay thank you taylor next question comes in the form of a super chat thank you so much from who what when and question is for snake if abiogenesis is unfeasible slash unscientific how else <laughs> can you explain the existence of life taylor go ahead you got a minute if we somehow um demonstrated that it's you know not possible i guess how else would we explain it we don't need an explanation we can just say i don't know that would be the honest answer um but if we must have an explanation there's a lot out there there's um not uh, there's other types of intelligent design like perhaps multiple gods or a god that creates sub gods that create life or pixies that create life that are just eternally there and that's all they can do they're not gods they just go around making life but um the question kind I'm of second. assumes an unscientific method itself by saying if one method is determined to be false you have to come up with another explanation no we can just not know thank you taylor paul you have a minute as well go ahead yeah again it's um a, a little bit outside the scope of the debate tonight um since i didn't i didn't appeal to that evidence but um i would call what taylor is doing there uh naturalism of the gaps uh, we don't know how such a thing is possible but taylor is assuming uh, by faith and and blind faith, I would add that there must be some naturalistic explanation for it. Uh, whereas I would certainly see it as as the fact that life exists, and there is no naturalistic explanation for that fact. That is evidence for the existence of God. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Taylor, thirty seconds. So that is a fallacious argument, the argument from ignorance, that just because we can't explain it this way, therefore it's uh, your theory. Um, that is a fallacy, so we have to reject it um, to be rational. Um, so I don't engage in naturalism of the gaps because that too is a fallacy. Um, and uh, however, we do have methodological naturalism, which is a method, not an assumption, but going back all the way to pretty much the very beginning of the debate, we can't put God in a test tube. We can't study him. We can't really study anything that's purported to be supernatural. Um, the only what we can do is study the natural world. I don't assume that there is no uh, supernatural world. I just haven't seen any evidence and I don't know how to study it. So all I have is the ability to study naturalistic things. That's our. That's the only thing we can do. So we're gonna go study that route. If some other method comes up, that's awesome. But I, I don't know what that would be. Okay, and uh, gentlemen, we are going to. We have one final question here as we wrap up the audience Q and A. Again, this has been an excellent debate. You both have been uh, 
very professional and uh, just a lot of great points discussed and engaged throughout the debate. So here we go. This one uh, comes in the form of a super chat, but I do want to honor the support here for the channel. So thank you to everybody who showed some love and uh, sent in their support and feedback in the audience. We've had a great chat. So final question, actually uh, looking at it a little bit more, it's more of a comment. It's directed to you, Taylor. So we'll give you the opportunity to respond however you feel fit. So Alyosha, $10 super chat. Thank you so much. He says, uh, you are collapsing the scope of God's knowledge and our personal agency past the point of meaningful distinctions. Any thoughts on that, Taylor? I'm not sure what that's, uh, what kind of comments that would be referring to. Um, it looked like it was posted somewhere in the middle of the debate. Alyosha, if you are in the uh, chat and you wanted to clarify or anything like that, since it is a comment, I understand it can be a little bit confusing. So let's wrap it up with this one instead. Lou has a question for Snake. We'll make this the last one. And it is a question rather than a comment. So thank you. Those who seek God will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13. Question for Snake. Have you personally, Taylor, ever truly sought out God? Yeah, yes. Um, that was the entire decision behind where I went to high school. I went to Catholic high school. Um, because it was religious. So I thought if... If I'm going to learn about God from anywhere, this is going to be the, the place to learn about it. They're going to make us read the Bible. We had religion classes. Um, and so I thought this this is a good place to go. Um, there were other aspects that I liked. So they had a good science program. But that that was my thoughts going in is I really want to study the Bible and see if this God thing has anything to it. Because personally, I would prefer there to be an afterlife and a supernatural and uh, souls and things like that. Um, but I don't see any evidence for them. And I went to that school and I started reading the Bible. And it was the Bible that convinced me that the Bible was false. Um, because there was just so much I, I that was contradictory or um, morally questionable. Um, the I can remember my first uh, objection, I think, really was um, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and then uh, murdering every firstborn in Egypt as a result of the thing that God forced Pharaoh to choose. So okay, that was the beginning you. of my <laughs> conversion to atheism, I suppose. Okay, thanks for the minute response. Paul, floor is yours. Uh, I can tell that the the whole issue of free will and choices is, is a big one for Taylor, and that's good. You know, the process of seeking God is a lifelong thing. Uh, we're all still on that process. Taylor is still on that process. You know, we should definitely Christians. We should pray for Taylor. We should we should uh, pray for our own uh, that we that we are seeking God continually and not becoming complacent uh, regarding the the issue with with pharaoh i will just point out to taylor um the same sun that melts ice hardens clay so i i don't believe that 
when it, when my my personal take on that particular issue is that uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart by displaying his power to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, in his own heart, was not willing to accept a, a power greater than himself. So uh, I don't believe that Pharaoh was without a free choice, even though God hardened him. Thank you very much, Paul. Taylor, uh, question was yours. This is the final question for ton uh, for tonight. We'll give you the last 30 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that that is... Um an interpretation, but I don't see that anywhere in the text. Um, but I think the main part was also killing all the firstborn in Egypt as a result of Pharaoh's choice. That's sort of like, um, you know, they didn't, do, they didn't even make the choice, even if Pharaoh had a free choice, someone else is getting punished for that. That's a problem. Um, the other thing, I guess it will come back to free will again, because um, I appreciate the well-wishing, but I'm, I'm intrigued of what uh, people think will happen if they pray for me and what will be successful. Um, will God reveal to me some kind of information that I didn't have access to before, in which case it seems unfair that he, that wasn't available to me before and to all people at all times, or will God somehow 10 seconds uh, if make me believe in some other way. So it's a very confusing concept for me and uh, love to talk to anyone uh, thoroughly about that as well. Okay, Taylor and Paul, that wraps up the Q&A. That also uh, wraps up the debate itself. We had some bonus minutes there on the audience Q&A. We went about 25 to 30 minutes. Time flies by when you are uh, engaging a topic such as this. Is there evidence for the existence of God? So again, excellent debate. I appreciate the time that the debaters have uh, given to us for tonight. We've had a fantastic audience. I want to thank uh, the audience for being so engaged and, and passionate on this topic. We had a ton of questions come in, a lot of feedback, a lot of supports, a lot of support. So thanks so much. Let's give the uh, debaters the opportunity, though, for some final words and final thoughts. Again, thank you so much for doing this. Taylor, why don't we start with you? Uh, final words, final thoughts? Uh, sure. Uh, thanks for having us. And um, yeah, I hope this debate has generated some uh, future conversations for us too and for other people. And yeah, I love the opportunities. Thank you. And I'm glad you said that uh, for 2023, we do host debates here on all sorts of topics. As people know, we do have a strong focus on creation versus evolution, but I'd love to get more debates on this topic. It's so important, incredibly interesting. I really enjoyed this debate. So anybody who wants to, who's interested, I guess, in a debate on a topic such as this, please reach out to me at standingfortruthministries at gmail.com. Uh, Paul, again, thank you uh, for being here. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, some final words, final thoughts? Uh, well, I'm, again, really blessed to get to be here, honored to get to take part in the debate. Um, I've enjoyed this process of uh, getting to meet Taylor for the first time. Uh, I certainly hope we have more opportunities to converse, uh, perhaps even in a less adversarial format, perhaps in the future. That might be a fun thing to just get to talk some stuff out. But I, I, if I was going to throw my money down, to me, uh, 
Taylor's on on the right path, not on the wrong path. I I, I believe he's showing a lot of uh, true willingness to to be open to the evidence and to be open to God, even though he doesn't claim belief in God right now. But you know, I get a good feeling. So we'll 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 pray. We'll pray about it. Okay, Paul, thank you for those final words and final thoughts. Again, one final reminder to the audience. If you have enjoyed, if you liked what you heard from the debaters tonight, Paul from the Uncensored Pilgrims YouTube channel and Taylor from the Snake Was Right YouTube channel, check the description box and you'll find all the relevant and links. Let, let, me just say, uh, sure, yeah. it, let me just say it is a YouTube channel, but really what it is is a podcast. And okay. unfortunately... Some of the stuff, Marty, man, Marty, he just loves to push that envelope and talk about all the most, uh, you know, interesting and controversial topics. So we've already gotten censored. Uh, we've oh. already gotten censored once. We are on YouTube. I really should have called it the Censored Pilgrims podcast on YouTube. So I would actually encourage people to check out the audio podcast. I think you can go anywhere where podcasts are found. Perfect. And find it. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I, I I can certainly put the audio podcast link in the description box as well, unless it could sure. al already be there. And so people, please check that out. Controversial is, is definitely good and fun. So with that, Paul and Taylor, thanks again for an excellent debate. And to the audience, thanks for tuning in. Please share around this content, guys. Critical thinking is important. And one way we specifically uphold critical thinking is by hosting these kinds of debates. With that, God bless all.